You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. Welcome, Jimmy Mack, to This Positive Life. Thank you. How did you find out you were HIV positive? It was a Valentine's Day gift from my boyfriend in 1987, and we were both living in Manhattan at the time, and he said to me, for Valentine's Day, we're going to get tested. He had made an appointment at a clinic in Chelsea, and I said, great. It was February 14th of 1987. We went in, they took blood, and told us to come back in two weeks, and we came back in two weeks, and uh, he went first and got his negative results. I walked in expecting to get the same results, and that woman said the, you know, the most devastating words I had ever heard at the time, and she said, you're HIV positive. And when I almost passed out, she said, honey, try not to think of it as a death sentence. You probably have a year to a year and a half before you get sick. And she let, she left out the word die very kindly, because in those days, people had a year to a year and a half before they got sick and died. It was two weeks before my 30th birthday, and I knew I would make it to my 30th birthday, but I figured that would be my last. And I just turned 50. Two questions. These were kind of the dark years of HIV. Why was this a Valentine's present? Wasn't this a scary thing to do back then? It was, and it was just kind of, I thought it was a very nice gesture on his part. Now, at the time, you know, I was in a monogamous relationship with this person. I had been in a monogamous relationship prior to that for about five years and had a period of time in between, which is when I got infected. When I, and he, it was just a very nice gesture at, at from him at the time. I had never been to a back room. I had never been to a bathhouse. So, you know, I thought, great, this is a no-brainer. But was it a prelude to having an unprotected No, we were, we were already having unprotected sex, oh, okay. he and I. And he's still alive and a friend and negative. Wow. So I guess he might be one of those special people who... No, he, he never got it. No, he's always been tested. He's always been negative. So second question, where did you get tested? Do you remember? I, I vaguely recall it was a clinic in Chelsea in a kind of a scary housing project down there. The rest of it's a blur. And what did your boyfriend say? Well, I walked out of that clinic with tears in my eyes, and he took one look at me and said, oh, no. And I said, yeah. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I, you know, and I can't really think about this, because to think about it would be to envision all the hundreds of friends that I had already watched die from AIDS. And I said, I just need to get some some vodka and some Coke, and I need to just get out of my mind for tonight. And little did I know that that would take me into my, my other disease, which is the disease of alcoholism and addiction. And I spent the next five, five and a half years completely out of my mind. What happened with that relationship? And six months later, he told me, he said, you know what, ever since you found out you're positive, you've turned into a, an out-of-control alcoholic and addict, and you need to get help. And if you don't get the help you need, I'm going to leave you. And uh, I couldn't. Uh, and he did. <laughs> he left me. But that wasn't a wake-up call? No. No. I uh, figured I was going to die any day. Why should I stop drinking and drugging? And it was my deep, dark secret back then. I didn't tell anyone. My father's a doctor. My sister's a doctor. My brother-in-law's a doctor. I come from a family of doctors. I didn't tell anyone. And I come from a, a loving, compassionate, liberal family who, who outed me at the age of 22 and said, you know, if you're gay, it's okay. We will love you no matter what. Be open about it. It's nothing to be ashamed of, and it's perfectly normal. And I couldn't even tell them this. It was I was so ashamed of it, of being positive, that uh, it was became my deep, dark secret, and I drank and drugged 
Did over you it. have drinking and drugging problems before your diagnosis? Um, I believe that I was born an alcoholic, and I believe I was born gay, but I was a functioning, a very highly functioning alcoholic at the time, and I, I, it was not an issue and not a problem. And from that point on, I, there was never a night that I went to bed sober, unless I was too sick to drink that day. You were living in Manhattan? I was living in Manhattan. I was working in advertising. Advertising at the time in the 80s was very enabling to an alcoholic. I had several liquor accounts. I had hospitality accounts. My boss was an addicted gambler who, as long as I got in before the first race, went off at OTB, which is around 1130. As long as I got in before that and he was able to go out the door, then he was fine with whatever I did. So I was able to go out every night and get into work by 11, and, you know, it was just kind of very enabling for me and my addiction at the time. And then it all came to a screeching halt in 1992 when my boss, who was gay and later died of AIDS, he said to me, Jimmy, you're sick and something's seriously wrong with you, and I'm, I'm bringing you to my doctor today. I've made an appointment. And we went to the doctor. This is five years later, the so, 1992. Yeah, could you clarify? So you found out you were positive and you never went to a doctor? No, never. No. You just... Nope. Ignored your disease. Totally. I was in complete denial. So you didn't tell another person besides your partner? My partner, that's it. Yep. And how many people did you know died from Oh God. AIDS related from the time oh, you were God. diagnosed to the time you finally went to a doctor? In those five years, I watched so many people die. What did you do when you went to the funerals or you went to the homes? Got I mean, drunk. Oh, so you just made believe that it was just a different thing. That you yeah, it, it didn't affect. It wasn't something that I could deal with. I was in total denial. So you were frightened to death. Of it. Oh, absolutely. And I always say, in that period of time, I lived, breathed, slept, and pissed nothing but fear. I lived in fear, complete fear. Every breath was going to be my last. And, and all I did was hasten my death by drinking and drugging all the time. That's how I dealt with it. During that time, in terms of sexual relationships? Ugh. It was sick. I mean, I wanted so desperately not to be associated with that disease that I even tried to crawl back into the closet. And I actually was dating women and men. It was totally sick. I was completely out of control. It was difficult to have sex with women. But when I was, you know, out of my mind on drugs or alcohol, I could have sex with anything. But it was a, a very dark, horrific time in my life. What kind of drugs were you taking? My drug of choice after alcohol would be cocaine, but I would do anything, anything, anything I can get my hands on, but a lot of cocaine. Was methamphetamine popular? No, thank God. Thank God, because I don't think I'd be alive today. I did meth once in that period when I happened to be in L.A., and I don't even remember why, and I went to a bathhouse. Now I'm starting to go to bathhouses in L.A., you know, in, in that period. I don't anymore, but um, in that period of time I was, and I went to a bathhouse in L.A. and did meth for the first time and got so stuck in that bathhouse, in that mind frame, doing that meth that I, I missed my flight back. I mean, I couldn't get out of the bathhouse because I just couldn't leave. Then when I got back to New York, and that was in the, the 80s, late 80s, I couldn't find it in New York. I couldn't find, nobody was doing it in New York. So I couldn't find it, so I wasn't able to do it. And that was my only experience with meth. So let's return to your boss taking you to the doctor. Right. So which doctor was it, do you remember? Uh, he was on 78th and Park. I can't remember. He was an HIV no, he was my boss's general doctor, oh. and he just took some blood work, and then 
He got back to me, and I went in again to see him. My boss took me in because I was so tired all the time, and I was exhausted, and I just looked sick. This is what the doctor explained. He uh-huh. said, okay, i got a few things to tell you, quite a few things to tell you. First and foremost, you have AIDS. Were you aware of that? Did you have any clue about that? And I, I feigned dumb. I said, really? And he said, second, you also have chronic progressive hepatitis B, which is the type of hepatitis that never goes away and just gets worse. Third, you have Epstein-Barr or chronic fatigue, which is probably, in addition to the other two, what is making you so exhausted and tired all the time. Fourth, your liver is so descended that I can tell by that and your enzymes that you are drinking on a regular basis and excessively, and you need to get help. Did he give you a CD4 count and a viral load? I don't think they had. This is 1992, and I don't think they had them then. Well, they had the CD4 count. Okay. He may have, but I don't remember what it was because I could care less. He told me it wasn't good. So that's all I knew. But did he say that you had an AIDS diagnosis instead of an HIV, meaning it was... No, he said, I remember specifically he said AIDS. Yeah, you have AIDS. You know, so I guess it was. The rest was a blur because I went from there and I told my boss then what the diagnosis was. And I said, I need to take a vacation. I went on a vacation in Puerto Rico. And down in Puerto Rico I was the beginning of a kind of an eye-opener for me because I wound up going down there. And uh, on the last day of my vacation, I found myself in a crack house. And I had was doing enormous amounts of rum and snorting cocaine. I wound up uh, smoking cocaine and then doing heroin to come down from the cocaine passed out cold and when I came to the next morning and I, I crawled to the only person left in that room and it was a 19 year old beautiful Puerto Rican boy to ask him where my watch my wallet my shoes were I was very naive even though I was 35 and uh, when I went put my hands on him he was cold and gray and very dead and this kid had OD'd, and uh, my first thought was, God, I wish it was me. That was my first thought. My second thought was a letter that my sister-in-law had written me saying, Jimmy, you're an alcoholic, you're an addict. Whenever you're ready to get help, I'll make sure you get it. And I thought about that letter, and I thought, wow, it could have been me who died here. And, and maybe she's right. Maybe I do have a little problem. And I left there, and I called her the next day, and I told her, and I said, listen, I think you're right. But I think that if I just laid off the illicit drugs, I would be fine. When I found that guy dead, it was Memorial Day weekend of 1992. That summer, I drank every day, everywhere I went. I carried a flask. I had a bottle in my drawer next to me. I had a bottle next to my bed. I never did another illicit drug. But I drank so much so that my family finally did an intervention at with a priest. And the, the result of that was my father, being a doctor, put me on antabuse. I drank on antabuse, which made me very sick and gave me hives, and and I still drank. And they did an intervention, and the priest said to me, Jimmy, your father says that with your diseases and the amount of drinking you're doing, that you will be lucky to live another six months. So your choice is either to stop drinking and live or to continue drinking and die within six months. What's it going to be? And I said, I know I can't stop, so I guess I'll have to die. And he went back to my family and told them that. I have six brothers and sisters, and my little brother, who's like my soulmate, sitting at this table, looked at me, and with tears in his eyes, he's the one who married that one who sent me the letter, uh, with tears in his eyes and said, but we don't want him to die. And all I could think of was how desperately I had to get out of that room at that moment and have a drink. 
the way I stopped was I finally, I was on the care team of my dentist. A lot of people in New York knew him at the time. He was the most gorgeous man. He was the dentist to all the fabulous gays at the time. And he was dying of AIDS, and I was elected to be on his care team. Everybody on his care team was sober but me. And I knew these guys had something I needed. He died so fast. He went to dementia and died so quickly that I never got a chance to even ask how they did it. How they did what? I'm sorry. How they stayed sober while we watched this gorgeous man we would meet to learn how to take care of him. Afterwards, these meetings with all of us, I'd say, who wants to go get a drink? And they all said, we don't drink. And I thought, what? How could they watch this gorgeous man die this horrible death and not drink? I didn't get it. But the night he died, I was with him, and I watched him die. And then that night I went home, leaving him with his sister dead. And I drank so much that I couldn't actually go to work the next day. I was that hungover and that sick. At home, my phone rang, and it was my former roommate, Eric Pfeiffer, who used to live with me for many years. And he had left me to go to San Francisco because he was sick and dying of AIDS. And he called and he said, Jimmy, I'm in the hospital. And he had been in and out of hospitals for two years. And I said, when are you getting out? He said, I'm not, and I need to see you. You have to get out here as fast as possible. I left the next day for San Francisco, and I walked into San Francisco General and saw my friend Eric, who at the time was maybe in his early 30s, looked like he was 92, had no hair, was on a respirator, was skin and bones, weighed about 89 pounds, and he asked his mother and his lover, Marcus, who was one of my best friends, to leave because he needed to talk to me. He basically said, Jimmy, if you don't stop drinking, you will be the next person lying on a deathbed, and it will have nothing to do with AIDS and everything to do with the disease of alcoholism. You have to get the help you need. And I, like a good alcoholic, I tried to bargain with him, and I said, I tell you what, I'll come out here, you could show me this wonderful program of AA, and, and, uh, and I'll take care of you, you could take care of me. And he said, no, 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 that's not the deal. The deal is right now you promised me that you will get the help you need. And, uh, and I did, and he died with me that night. It's like within one week, I'm with two of my closest friends watching them die. And the next day, I made the most difficult call I've ever made in my life. I called my parents, who loved me unconditionally, and said, you know, I need help. And I flew back from there and went to Seafield, the rehab in West Hampton Beach, which, you know, there are no coincidences. I I grew up on Seafield Lane. It's right down the road from me. And that's where I wound up, and I've been clean and sober ever since. Were your parents live in West Hampton? I grew up in West Hampton. My parents live in West Hampton, yeah. That's where I grew up. What happened to your job? (laughs) <laughs> they fired me, which I found out later was totally illegal for them to fire me for alcoholism is considered a handicap, and they can't fire you while you're in a rehab. But they did. I didn't know any better. It's so fortunate that you got to deal with all these other issues, drugs and alcohol, and that HIV, which you saw all these people having only one choice, which is to deal with their HIV, but you had other choices. Like It's amazing for me, that you could ignore your HIV for so many years and still be okay. I know. We talked about that. Your boss brought you to that doctor, and then did you get treatment yet or anything? Well, actually, when I went to that doctor in May of 92, all they had was uh, AZT, and he gave me a prescription for AZT, and I convinced him I also needed a prescription for hydrocodone or something like that for a backache that I had, filled the other one, and started taking that. 
so I never did anything really until 19, much, much later. When I got sober, I got involved with the GP160 study out of St. Vincent's. How did that happen? That you suddenly got involved in clinical trials. Why was that a first step for you? And what year are we talking about? I kind of recall an incident with my boss when they own a private island and somebody had to deliver my medication or something. So I guess I was on some medication and they saw what it was and word got out and my boss took me aside and said, you know, if this is what it is, if it's HIV, you know, it's okay. And his wife, who is is now ex-wife, was wonderful. And she said, we're going to get you the best care that we can. And she got me involved in this trial for IL-2, I think it was, through Sam Wax. How long after you got fired from the other job? I got fired from the other job in 1992. And then I went from there to managing a restaurant in the Hamptons that summer. And then I got involved in working with my current job, which I've been with since 1994. In 1994, there was more than AZT available, I believe. I seem to recall that it wasn't until maybe 95 that I started taking a combination of AZT and 3TC, because I don't recall ever taking AZT by itself. I first went and took the two of them because they started the press, and, and I kept up on it with saying, you know, actually, this is really working really well. People should do it. And I said, I'll give that a shot. Did you contact any AIDS organizations to find out more information? How did you stay up to date with the treatment information? Project Inform and all sorts of, I read everything I could. And my sister is also a doctor, and she was reading everything she could and sending me all the medical information she could get her hands on. And my father's a doctor, and I was getting information from all sorts of sources, GMHC, PAWS, everything. Once I was sober, I realized that, I had to do something about now that I got the other one disease in check, I had to take care of the other one. Did you find a good physician at that point? I did. I found a great physician in West Hampton Beach where I was living at the time, Jennifer, and she wound up going to one of the pharmaceutical companies. She was so good, and she kept saying to me, Jimmy, you know this disease better than I do, and that's the only way you're going to survive because it's so new, I can't keep up with everything, and I need to hear from you what you've heard, what you've learned, what you're experiencing. She put me on testosterone replacement shots at the time, and I went through AZT and 3TC, and then in 1997, I remember, I got my first real AIDS diagnosis in that I had T-cells down to about 150. I had cryptococcal meningitis. I had Carposi sarcoma. I was really starting to get sick. I believe that's when they came out with the protease inhibitors. They started combination three. So were you on Crixivan? Crixivan, yeah. So you were on Crixivan and 3TC and AZT? Right, exactly. How did you do on it? Did you get Crix belly? Any side effects? I have been on everything that's been out there, and I recall so many different side effects. They're all a blur to me. I do recall Crix belly. I do recall having peripheral neuropathy. When I speak for Love Heals, which is an organization that sends people who are HIV positive to high school to talk about their experience with HIV and AIDS, I go out and tell them that there seems to be this myth that these medications are wonderful. And yes, they are. Yes, they've kept me alive. But they have horrific side effects. Peripheral neuropathy was one of the horrible ones. But in my opinion, the worst one is death. And the only time I have actually ever been hospitalized in my life was twice to an allergic reaction to two of the different medications that I was on. And it's so severe that I almost died. Do you remember the meds? 
oddly enough, it was the Virocept, which is unusual. Mm-hmm. Viromune is very common to get allergic reactions to, but Virocept, I got a very, very bad. It was exasperated because at the time, I had just started the Virocept, and I was also doing IL-2, interleukin-2, which exasperates any kind of symptoms you get. If you're on IL-2 and you have a cold, you wind up feeling like you have the flu because it makes you so sick anyway. But that's how I became an EMT, because of that experience. It was December of 2001, and I was living in Manhattan. I was out there in Southampton visiting my brother, and I was on the IL-2, and I had just started a new regimen, which included Virocep, and my sister-in-law was about to leave me with her kids, and I suddenly felt so sick. I said, don't leave me. Something's wrong. And and I, she said, what's the matter? I said, I, I feel like I'm on fire. And she felt me, and she goes, wow, you're burning up. She took my temperature. It was 104 and a half. And I said, call my doctor in the city. And she called my doctor, and the doctor said, that's not good. Get him into a tub of cool water and put ice packs under his armpits. Get him cooled down and call me back in half an hour. He should be cooler. So she called back in half an hour, and the doctor said, what's his temperature now? She said, it's 105 and a half. And the doctor said, okay, try to remain calm, but don't let him know this, because at 106, he's going to go into convulsions, and he's not going to last long. So... Get some blankets ready because he'll start thrashing around in that tub and call 911 and tell them to get there as fast as possible. And they came in, and this wonderful Irish EMT came up to me. And now I'm starting to lose my mind at such a high temperature, and I'm sitting there in the tub and refusing to move. I'm not going anywhere. I feel fine. I'm in this tub. I can't move because I'm just I am so hot. Convinced me to get out of the tub and into the rig and took me to the hospital, and they put me on a cooling bed, and I spent... The the holiday be, between Christmas and New Year's that year, the entire time in the hospital. This I, was a result of what? The virus, the well, allergic reaction that was so severe that I was having, and I was covered with hives, and it was just terrible. And I said to myself, if I ever move back to Southampton, I'm going to join this ambulance. And lo and behold, after New York and then London, I wound up coming back here with my job to Southampton and joined the volunteer ambulance, became an EMT myself, because I can. So how long have you been an EMT there? I have been an EMT since 2005. Both years I won awards for going on over 100 calls. This year I won an EMT Member of the Year award in addition to my award for going on over 100 calls. What's your background? When I was in the city, before getting sober, I was in um, advertising for 12 years. And then I left to get sober and wound up out in the Hamptons and, and then met my current employer, and I'm now in property management, and I'm still doing that. So the the EMT is just volunteer. That's just a sideline. Yeah, but you live full-time? In Southampton now, yeah. Tell me about your love life since you became sober and since well, you started treatment. When I got sober, my first partner was somebody that I met. I w- actually went back to Puerto Rico <laughs> where I had my, my bottom, went back down there, and I met the most wonderful Puerto Rican, and within, in my first year of sobriety, I think I had 11 months, even though my sponsor was telling me, don't do anything like get into re- involved in a relationship in your first year. Well, I met this Puerto Rican when I was counting days of sobriety down in Puerto Rico and moved him up. He came to live with me, Orlando Martino, and we were together for a while. We got married. We had a big wedding at my parents' house in 1990. Five. We had a commitment ceremony at my parents. 
house in the Hamptons. They have a beautiful home right across from the ocean. We had 250 people. We were together for quite a while. He passed away in August of 2002. He died of AIDS. I was with him when he died, as well as my previous boss. It's in advertising. I was with him when he died of AIDS, and I watched my partner. That was the toughest one because, you know, at the time he was the love of my life, and I watched him die of a horrible death. He celebrated his 40th birthday in uh, Cabrini in the hospital in New York. And then right after that, I moved to London with my job. A year later, I met the most beautiful young (laughs) Frenchman I've ever seen in my life. He was visiting a friend of his in London, who introduced us, and he's 20 years younger than me. He's HIV negative, and he's not alcoholic, and he is, in my opinion, the most beautiful man I've ever seen. We met and fell in love, and we've been together ever since. How many years has it been? This, we're in our fifth year now. Wow. Yeah. And he moved with you to Southampton? Yes, he's here, and he's he's in college. He's much younger than me, and he's going to college because we can't marry because we're gay, and this country is very prejudice when it comes to that, in my opinion. So the only way we could get him to stay here is through a student visa. And so he's he never went to college, so he's going to college out here. And now it's five years later, and he's still HIV negative. How did you negotiate safer sex? When you met people and you were trying to date, and how was disclosure for you? I learned in rehab that one of the most important things I learned there was you're as sick as your secrets. And my secrets were making me so sick that they were killing me. After I came out, I was completely open with everything to everybody. Once my boss, shortly thereafter, he found out too. I had told my family and friends right out of rehab that I'm HIV positive, I'm an alcoholic, and this is the way it is. And how did they react? Everyone was very supportive. And even people who I told who I was dating, I would tell it right up front, this is me, this is who I am. And did they reject you or did they? I recall one person when I was out here in early sobriety who who was just adorable, and I told him on the first day, and we had just not had sexual intercourse or anything, anything like that. We just kind of fooled around. And I said, you know, you need to know something. I'm HIV positive. And he was absolutely shocked. And he says, I, I, can't, I can't do this then because I'm not. And I, I just can't. You're the first person I've met who's told me that. And I said, I'm really not the first person you've met who's HIV positive. I'm probably not the first person you've dated who's HIV positive. I am the first person honest enough to tell you. <laughs> so that we can get clear, but he, he didn't want to go any further. And I learned from that. I said, you know what, it, I'll just tell people right up front. They have a problem with it, good, then I don't need to go any further. I don't need to waste my time with them. So it was less painful yeah. to tell people right. up front. To- right. Uh, before anything went anywhere. And I don't believe in secrets. Did yeah. you think that people sounded refreshingly honest, or were Most they turned people, off? No, we're talking here about a positive life, and it's a positive thing. To me, I think of it as today as probably the greatest gift God ever gave me. When I found out my status in 1987, it brought me to my knees with my other disease of alcoholism so that I could finally find sobriety and find a higher power and find myself. So it was it was an incredible gift, and I see it as such. I tell people I am so blessed to have been given this gift and to have survived it and to watch all, to have seen all I've seen, and I see it as something positive. So I put it out as something positive. So people respond 
positively to it because I think of it as a positive. I am not ashamed of the fact that I'm HIV positive. I don't understand. You know, people go around saying, oh, I have a cold today, and nobody seems to care. Well, I go around saying, yeah, and I, I, you know, I'm HIV positive. So what? What do you think about the way, particularly in the gay community, I think, HIV has gotten back into the closet? You probably know lots of people who are HIV positive, but they're not telling anybody. I see that, and I, I hear that, and people always call me, and I am getting so many calls from so many friends who are testing positive. And I'm, first of all, amazed, and I think, wow, okay, and we talk about it. And, and they don't want people to know, and I think it's more of an embarrassment, people thinking, how could they? In this day and age when everyone knows how not to get it, how are they getting it? Are they stupid? I think that's more the reason why they want to keep it a secret than anything else. What do you tell people? I kind of tell people, you know, when you're ready, you will tell others. It's nothing to be ashamed of. I'm very, very open and vocal about it. I think everybody should know because somebody's got to be out there setting an example and saying, look, I'm HIV positive. I have a full-time job. I volunteer as an EMT. I have a healthy, normal sex life with an HIV-negative partner who's younger than me and very hot. I mean, if I have to be the poster child who's going out there and saying, this disease, if you take care of yourself, one is able to live with it. And, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It really isn't. So have you convinced anybody? Along the way, I believe, yes. I believe I've convinced a lot of people to stay sober, a lot of people to, to come out with their HIV status. So are you and still I, active at AA or? Oh, yeah, still active Did you go AA. to NA ever? Or? I've gone to NA more active in AA now because there are more AA meetings out here than there are NA meetings. You know, I used to do a lot of NA when I was in the city. So what do you think the biggest challenge is of living with HIV? You know, the stigmatism that people seem to think that you're HIV positive and therefore you're an invalid, which is one thing. When I go out and speak for Love Heals and I go to high schools, I say, did anyone in this room know that I'm living with AIDS? Technically, I got into that category, and according to the government, you don't get out. So I am technically a person living with AIDS because I was there since 1997, so 10 years, 20 years HIV positive, 10 years as a person living with AIDS. I believe once you get in that category, the government doesn't let you out of it. I say, look at me. First of all, who would have known by looking at me because I don't, I, I don't look like I have it. Second of all, I lead a normal life. I'm fully employed, and uh, I, I, I always have been, and... This doesn't have to be the death sentence that it used to be. You know, the medications have worked for me. I keep up with my doctor. I lead a healthy lifestyle. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I eat right. I exercise. I do everything right, and I, I probably live a good long life. Have you ever had issues with lipoatrophy, you know, facial wasting? I don't or have that. I have accumulation. A, yeah, I have some lipodystrophy in my stomach, and I have been talking to my doctor about that. And basically, she's looking into some new diabetes medications that have been showing some promise for that, but it's all kind of experimental at this point, you know. It doesn't bother you that much? I'm able to suck it in, and and I do exercise so a, a lot. My arms have gotten a little scrawny, so I exercise my arms and legs more to keep them from getting any scrawnier. Does it bother me? No. I really look like, you know, I'm 50 years old. Most of the guys that I know are 50 years old, have a bigger belly than I do, and have less hair. I look normal for my age. I really do. What is your current treatment regimen? Right now, I'm doing a tripla. That, that's it? That's it. One pill a day in the morning. It's amazing. 
although my doctor's concerned because my viral load has gone from undetectable to like hovering in the 5,000, 6,000 range. And I went for years with if it was under 10,000, I was happy. How long have you been on a tripla? I've been on a tripla for a couple of years now. But it was a tripla and Lexiva and Norvir, so I was on five. I was undetectable for the longest time, and I said, you know what, I really want to go off those protease inhibitors because I'm tired of having chronic diarrhea and feeling bloated and yucky. And she said, okay, let's give it a shot. You're, let's see what happens. I've been off since a couple months now, maybe six months I've been off of the other, the protease inhibitors and just on a tripla. And she's monitoring me and saying, okay, you know what, it was working for a while and may not be. We may have to add back in a protease inhibitor or two or so we just did a uh, genotype phenotype to see what we can do now and where we'll go. I'm hoping to just stay on this. I, I love this regimen. I feel so good all the time, and there are no side effects. Are you taking other things like supplements? I take money? all the supplements. Yeah, you name it, I take it. How many do you take a day? I have a drawer that is filled with nothing but supplements. I must take about twelve to fifteen supplements a day. What happened with your CD4 count? My last was 835, which is phenomenal. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. What was the biggest push to get it there? You started pretty low, so what made it climb even more? What You know what made it climb extraordinarily was every time I did the IL-2, it would climb, it would double or triple every time I finished an IL-2 treatment, but th- those treatments were brutal. I mean, I would be so sick and in bed, wiped out with a fever and the chills and like you, having the worst flu in, in the world from doing the, the IL-2. But when I was done, and it's like five days of that, my T-cells would double or triple. And that was part of a clinical trial? That was part of a clinical trial. And I understand that you do participate in a few of them now and again. Uh, it's I one do. of your interests. Yeah, I do, because I feel that I'm healthy and strong enough to be able to do those things, and the research that comes out of them is phenomenal, so why shouldn't I? I also did thalidomide, which wasn't a big winner. That didn't do so well, and I did the GP160, which was the original vaccine. I did the precursor to viridin FTC. It was a drug back then that they found they had kidney problems with, that they had to tweak. So you're thinking of other trials now for the the lipode? I am currently talking and involved in a trial at Stony Brook for a diabetes medication that uh-huh. may be promising for the lipodystrophy huh. because everything else is normal. My uh-huh. cholesterol is normal. I have a good heart. So are you taking hepatitis B medications? or The FTC and Viride work very, very well against the hepatitis B. My hepatitis B has been in check because of those. Those I, I kind of would like to keep or need to keep in my as part of my regimen because of the hepatitis B. But you haven't had any problems with that over the years? No, not really. So currently, how do you stay on top of the latest information about HIV? You know, I read everything I can get my hands on. Your source is a particularly good one for current and up-to-date information on, on trials, on HIV. On, I read everything. Do you read conference coverage reports also? Do you read, like, the real research? I do, actually, and I try to get through them, but a lot of them don't make all that much sense <laughs> to me. So, so you I haven't try- become a geek. <laughs> no, I mean, but they usually come with a summary, and I read the summary. Uh-huh. At the end of the conference, they go through so much information, and then at the end they kind of summarize what they found was most important, and that's what I read. You, you told us a little bit about your dating history, so you never really dated on the Internet. 
I, I didn't know. I never really did. I'm not really that good with computers. Because people out there who are dating and mostly doing Internet stuff, have you advised people about that? About, cause well, you, a, you found a very nice partner, and people are looking to do that. <laughs> what advice would you give them? Particularly someone who's just diagnosed thinks, oh, my God, that's it. It's over. You made it sound so easy <laughs> when it's kind of a challenge sometimes, even when you're negative. I don't know. It's as challenging as, as you make it. You know, and I've always put forth a positive spin on the whole thing. And I love the fact that it's called HIV positive. And this whole conversation is about living positive. I, everything I do is in it with a positive aspect on it. You know, I'll tell you something. When I first met my current partner, I thought to myself, is he flirting with me? And my first thought was very alcoholic. It was, how could this beautiful, young, French, HIV negative, non-alcoholic man be interested in an old, positive addict like myself, drunk, you know? I mean, what could he possibly see in me? And I thought, wait a minute, let's take a deep breath here. I'm 10 years sober, and I am now able to see the light that comes from within. And I know it's there, and I know that that's what he's seeing, too. You know, I've had dental issues throughout all my life from a car accident I had a long time ago. And I've had to have my teeth replaced, and there was going through this with him. I recently had to get implants. I said, oh, my God, it's going to be tough. I have these stupid plastic things I have to wear in my mouth, and I'm not even going to smile. And he goes, honey, even he's so sweet. Even without your teeth, you, your smile glows because it comes from within. You know, I mean, that's what he sees in me. And I think that's what other people see in me. I know that I have the capability to come from within. I, you know, I am good-looking, but I enhance that through the fact that I, I know that I put a, a positive spin on everything. And I see life not through rose-colored glasses, but I see it as, you know, everything's been a gift, and everything was for me to learn something, and I've learned a lot. And, and life is beautiful. It's all so inspiring. What could you say to somebody who was just diagnosed, and what would you tell them about having hope? They could definitely talk to me, and I'll, I'll give them hope. Uh, you could put my email address in there. It's 20 years now. I'm in the process of buying my first home. I'm settling down with a beautiful young man who loves me for the person that I am. There is the medication, and the fact that I lead a healthy lifestyle has allowed me to live a completely normal life. In this day and age, it doesn't, it's not like it was 20 years ago when it was so horrible and so shameful, and it was just a death sentence. Today, you can live a long, healthy, normal life with this disease. There's so much hope. It's incredible. I mean, I'm so grateful that I've lived this long to see it come this far. But I think the one thing that I would like to impart is that it's not something to be ashamed of. And if you're going to live with shame... It's going to eat you alive. Just like that old saying that I learned so long ago in rehab, you're sick as your secrets. And if you're, if you're keeping it a secret, that means you're ashamed of it. And, and that's going to eat you alive. And people are going to sense when you're out there on a date, mm, something's not right, he's not telling me something. When I come out with it as, wow, well, look what, what I've been through and you know what I've seen and this gift that has been given to me, people are, are very moved by it. And you know what? If they're not, I don't really want to have anything to do with them. So be authentic. Love yeah. yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And go out there. And, and you, you said it, Bonnie. Love yourself. 
one of the greatest things I learned in rehab, I walked in there hating and loathing myself. And I learned how to like myself in rehab. And then I learned slowly but surely how to love myself. And then finally, at 10 years, I learned that I am a lovable person. Because I am able to love myself, others are able to love me too. And that's why I was able to meet this wonderful man who I'm still with and who I adore. So what did you do for your 50th birthday? I had a big party. My my sponsor, Jonathan, threw a big party for me in Manhattan. He had a big cake there, and he sent out a, an Evite to all the guys. Uh-huh. And I had 125 people show up to celebrate. And the Evite that he sent out said, come help Jimmy Mack celebrate 20 years HIV positive, because that was in February, 50 years of a life well-lived, and 15 years living that life clean and sober. It was extraordinary. I had so many people show up from so many different parts of my family, my friends, people from my past, show up to uh, this party in the city. Uh, that was It was extraordinary. I know I get a little choked up, but it was amazing. It's a major landmark. All three of them. 2007 is my year. And on top of it all, I'm buying my first home. I mean, who would have thought? Jimmy Mack, it's been very inspiring to talk to you. It's really been a privilege. Oh, Bonnie, it's been great. And uh, and I'm sure lots of people will be contacting you. Yes, it's jimmy.mack at hotmail.com. Feel free to email me there, and I'll respond to anybody who emails me. I'm always happy to put a positive word out there for my positive friends. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com.